Welcome to the Burning Hearts Church Podcast. We are so glad that you're joining us this week. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me. This place is, um, this is home to me. I don't know if you know that, but like when I come here, you feel like family. Um, Antioch is a part of an organization that plants churches all over the United States and then all over the world. We have about 45 U.S. churches so far, and then we have about 100 uh, and 20 or so teams in about 50 countries around the world uh, reaching the unreached. And when I come here, first of all, the presence of God is so thick. Um, if, you're, if you don't know Jesus, but you're in this room and you're like, this place is strange, it's because you're probably experiencing something supernatural. And I, I want you to not to be weirded out. I actually want you to lean into that because that's the presence of God. And that's something we are jealous for and we are hungry for. And I wanna encourage you just to lean into God this morning. It has been two years since I've been here last um, and a lot has happened in two years. Uh, first of all, for your community, like this building is incredible. This is such a gift. Thank you, Jesus. I'm sure this was a process. I'm sure it was a sacrifice of giving. I'm sure it was a lot of intercession and prayer nights and, and fasting and God, please move. And I'm sure it was a lot of things, but what a blessing. This is incredible to see your community grow. It's incredible to see uh, your house being built and God is building the house and it's so good. Um, we also had just a crazy two years as human beings on a planet, right? Uh, wow, like so much life has been lived uh, and so much life has been restricted <laughs> just in the last two years. Um, but I, I wanna encourage you that God knew that this last two years were gonna happen. And I don't know what you're carrying. Um, just to give a heads up, I might cry. Uh, I don't cry all the time, but sometimes I just get really emotional in the presence of God and God is with you guys and I can feel it. And it makes me a little sensitive, so I apologize in advance if I just start to cry for some reason. Um, but, but I can just, I can sense that whatever God's wanting to heal you of today, he wants to do it full, a full measure. And whatever you guys have been carrying the last two years of loss and disappointment and grief, like he was, a well, he was well aware in advance that he, he was gonna meet you in your place of pain today. Um, I was, I was even reading, this was not in my notes, but I was reading this morning and I was just praying over you guys and I was reading out of Luke 21 and it, it's this prophetic word that Jesus is giving to his disciples saying, hey, in coming days down the road in the future, there's gonna be all kinds of hardships. He talks about, you know, there are gonna be uh, lots of voices. Are there not a lot of voices right now? Like when you say, man, there's a lot of noise going around in our world right now. Uh, he talks about how there is, there's all these uprisings uh, and that people are going to be frightened. When you say that's kind of the reality of our world today, he talks about nations rising up, nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, husbands and fathers, uh, uh, parents against children, children against parents, friends against friends. There's gonna be division. He talks about earthquakes, famines, pestilence, fearful events, aka COVID, you know? Like he speaks of these things that are gonna come but then he ends with Luke 21, nine, and he says, stand firm and you will win life. <laughs> Who doesn't wanna win at life? I was like, I, want, I wanna win at life. Like, sign me up for that, you know? And he says, so how do we do that? We stand firm. And another passage that I felt like the Lord was just speaking this morning was just the whole, the, the whole promise of in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I love this passage. I, I mean, this is like, the go-to comfort passage for me, okay, God, I'm, ex I'm experiencing many troubles right now, but I'm gonna take heart because you've promised that you've overcome the world. 
So I think there's this, this plea from God today that he wants you to stand firm and he wants you to take heart because he is one who's brought victory and he's, he's, brought, he's brought overcoming and he's brought winning of life to you today. So how do we do that? How do we, like that sounds lovely. It sounds really romantic, Adam. But where do we begin with taking heart or standing firm? How do we overcome this world? What does that even mean? And my proposal is that we learn to receive the love of God. And this is so ABCs for the record. So if you're like, man, I've heard this before. I'm asking that you have the grace to receive it at a deeper measure today. But it's to receive the love of God and then it's to learn to love like Jesus. This is how we overcome the world. Because the world's gonna press against us how do we press back? You know, I talk often, I do a lot of marriage counseling and I tell them, like they come in, people come in, they're like, we're fighting. I'm like, welcome to being married. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, that's how it works. You know, the, the commitment isn't, I commit to never fight with you. It's the commitment of, as I'm gonna fight with someone, I choose to fight with you for the rest of my life. You know, <laughs> like that's, so we wanna learn to fight well. It's gonna happen, so how do we fight well? And it's learning to fight for one another, not against one another. And the church needs to learn to rise up and fight for this nation and for this world and for the hearts and souls of men and not against them. There has to be a shift where people are no longer our enemy. And I don't care what political stance, COVID stance, racial stance, economic stance, educational stance, I don't care what the situation is. People are not our enemy. There has to be a shift. And if we don't, we will be overcome by this world. We will not overcome the world. We'll become conformed to the pattern of this world versus being otherworldly as Christians are called to be. We're called to live supernatural lifestyles as followers and lovers of Jesus. And it's not in our own strength, but it's learning to tap into the love of God for us and then giving it away to other people. You cannot give people something you do not have. We know this principle. I'm sure you've heard that before. You can't give away something you don't have. So if you don't know right now that Jesus is madly in love with you, I pray that that be the one thing you get this morning. He is madly crazy in love with you. He likes your sense of humor. He likes the way you smell, even the weird stuff. He's, he's crazy about all of you. Like the Bible in the, in, in the Old Testament says that you're the apple of his eye. You're his prized possession, his greatest joy. If that's the one thing you get, I pray that you get that. But I do believe that there's a calling to love like Jesus, but it's hard work. In this day and age, relationships are hard work, right? And movies like to romanticize it. You know, the guy gets the girl, the best friends go on the, the epic trip, the whatever, you name it, right? But in reality, we know that sometimes the girl dumps the guy and, you know, the friends bail on, on the other friend. And like life is more messy than we'd like to admit. But God is asking us to lean in this morning. And not just this morning, he's asking to jumpstart something in us that we might lean in every day as followers of Jesus. Our society is not a good example, for the record, of how to deal with the drama of life. Do not look to the world to learn how to do marriage well. Do not look to the world to learn how to, what it means to be a real friend to other friends. Um, the world is, is broken and it's hurting. The world will tell you in marriage, oh, you guys, you, you're having a fight? Okay, it must not be working out. You, you should get a divorce. You know, uh, there's some skewed statistics. They even say that divorce rates are getting better, which you think is a, it is a good thing. God grieves over divorce. And if you're divorced, there's grace for you today. There's no condemnation in Jesus, amen. But God grieves over the brokenness of commitment and of covenant specifically, which is what a marriage is, is a covenant. And the divorce rate now is between 40 and 45%. It used to be 52%. 
And it was in the church and out the church alike. The church was, which tells us that the church wasn't looking to God for what marriage should be. They were looking to the world as an example. If we're modeling the world, then we're gonna, our statistics are gonna look like the world, right? So we need to learn to look to Jesus. Well, statistics now are down to 40, 45%, but that's because uh, there's an uptick of cohabitation where people are like, hey, like, I like you, but I don't know if I actually wanna, wanna commit my whole life to you, so I'm just gonna live with you for a while which is kind of a weird thing to tell somebody, but that's actually what's happening on a regular basis. And people are moving in together. But cohabitation has an 80% failure rate. So actually it's higher. If you, continue, if you add that into divorce concept, it's higher than it's. Relationships are more broken today than they have ever been. Isn't that wild? Like the world is crying out in pain and we the church are the answer to it because we carry the presence of God. So we are the answer to it. So we've got to look to God on how to do things. We know that um, 20% approximately of Americans could be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. That, su- that study was done, just so you know, prior to COVID. That was done three years ago. It's gone up 41%. So people are dealing with pain. People are struggling internally with what's going on in life. I would not say that we are winning at life as a society. But there's a promise in scripture that if we stand firm, that if we take heart, we will overcome this world, we will win at life. It's a real thing. I just wanna encourage you, it's a real. It's not a pipe dream. It's not just an emotive thing I'm trying to woo you into right now as a communicator. Like John 10, 10 says, I've come to give life and life to the full. It's a real thing. And I can ask, typically in most settings when I preach, I say, how many people have experienced life in Jesus? And most hands will be raised. Then I'll say, awesome, how many are experiencing life to the full? And most people don't even know what I'm talking about. And this is for the church. They're going, actually, I don't know if I know what life to the full means. I'm not bubbling over in the things of God. And I wanna challenge you, it's real. It's a real thing, friends. I'm pleading with you to believe me. You can wake up a different human being as you experience more of Jesus. Like you can wake up and be like, I cannot believe I get to live this life. Colors are brighter, food tastes better. I mean, not even in the supernatural stuff, even in the natural, you're experiencing more of God in everything that you're doing. It's a real opportunity that God provides us. And it absolutely wants to infiltrate how we do life with people, how we, how we approach our society that's broken, how we approach our marriage relationships and our friendships and our coworkers and our classmates, God cares about all of it. So how do we do it? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, we have a group of Pharisees, which are religious leaders, and they're very proud individuals that think they're pretty awesome. And they have memorized the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. They have it memorized, they could quote it, and they usually try to look down their nose and rub it in other people's faces that they know it better than the other people around them. Like that's kind of the culture of Pharisees. And Jesus is in the scene, and they have time and time again tried to dupe him or mess with him or get him to say something wrong, and Jesus has constantly overcome them with wisdom and, 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 and godliness and truth, and they're frustrated by him. So they, they get together and they're like, okay, we're gonna try to do it again. And just for the record, Sadducees is more or less the same as Pharisees. It's another group of religious leaders. So picking up in verse 34 of Matthew 22, that's where we find ourselves. And it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which was, he just duped another group of religious leaders that think they know better. And he actually is like, no, let me tell you what truth is. 
It says the Pharisees, this group, got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. I could imagine that this would go over pretty well with the Pharisees, at least the first part. I imagine even, I was trying to play this out in my mind of maybe what the scenario, I don't know if you ever do this, but you try to put yourself in the scene and what's happening. And I'm like, I bet Jesus was like, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I bet they were like giving golf claps. I could imagine, well said, you know, the Pharisees, I approve. Because he's, he's quoting a passage from De- Deuteronomy. So it's something they had already memorized. They actually had written a Jewish song about this that they would sing on a weekly basis as Jewish people. If they were a good Jewish person, they would sing a song that says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So they would know this. And they're like, well done, well done. But then in true Jesus fashion, he like turns it up to 11, right? And he like totally like makes it like, so the whole, like Jesus does this, if you don't know this. Like, you know, you say thou shalt not murder. He's like, you know, don't even have hatred in your heart towards someone. And, you know, do not, you know, have adultery. He's like, man, if you even lust with your eyes, then your heart has already committed adultery towards them. And you're going, oh, Jesus, chill out, you know, come on, you know. But he does this again with these Pharisees. He says, oh, and like it, he says, like it being the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two things. The word like it, I'm not a Greek scholar, so give me a little grace here on this pronouncing of this. Homoios, I believe is how you say it. That word like it in verse, 20, uh, in verse uh, 39 is, means equivalent to. It means inseparable. So in my language, it means the peanut butter and jelly of the kingdom. Like you, they go together, it's meant to be. So what he's saying here is you cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength completely if you do not love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you can't love your neighbor as yourself completely if you do not love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He has just taken these two massive paradigms and he's married them forever together. And he says, if you really wanna win at life, if you wanna, so for the record, if the greatest person of all time tells you the most greatest important thing, you might wanna pay attention. So this is God of the universe saying, hey, if you wanna know the most important thing, think of like a parent on the deathbed and they're like, if I have one thing to tell my children, if I could tell them anything of the greatest importance, this is what you need to hear. And then he goes and he says, love God wholeheartedly, everything in you. Oh, by the way, you can't do that completely if you don't love other people. And you're going, what? But God, have you ever had the but God moments? But God, like I've been wronged. But God, they're not like me. But God, they have evil intent. I'm right, they're wrong. And we've noticed the division that's happened, the, the pandemic, not of just COVID, but the, the, I've been reading this book and it talks about the, the pandemic of untruths in our society. And it's by non-Christians. It's these social psychologists that are talking about these untruths that our society's totally adopted. And one is that everybody's either a good person or a bad person. That everybody's in a bucket and you're for me or you're against me. Another untruth is that my feelings are true. I feel it, therefore it's true. That's not true for the record, Right? And so there's all these divisive things that are happening that our society's adopting and agreeing with. And I'm telling you, church, we can't agree with it. We can't operate in that same spirit. 
But what we do is we love God wholeheartedly and we love other people as ourselves. And then, you know, the common question is, who's our neighbor? And then Jesus gives the whole parable about the Good Samaritan. And the point of the whole parable is any person in front of you that has a heartbeat is your neighbor. Any person is your neighbor. Whoever's in front of you, love them. Love them radically. Love them at a cost. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to love them. We say, well, how or when do we do this in Matthew 25? So just a few chapters later, it says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous people standing there, all these faces, when do we do that? Like, I don't remember spending my time that way, right? And they say, and the king, speaking of Jesus, I love that it says that, even it defines him as, and the king replied, truly I tell you, whatever you do for one of the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. He, again, is reinforcing this marriage of loving God requires loving people. And loving people requires us, loving people well requires us to learn to love God. This is what we're called to. I wanna say that it sounds easy, but it's really, really hard. It's hard to love people. I mean, I really, really love my wife. And, and the, the love I have for my wife today makes the love I had on our wedding day look cheap. And I loved her with everything in me. But 17 years ago when I said I do, I mean, it, it was sincere, it was full, but because we have bared with one another, because we have fought for and not just against one another, because we have learned to press in in relationship with one another, the love I have for her now, it's not even comparable. Like I have grown in my love for my wife. As we are also called to grow in our love for one another, but the problem is for us to do that, we have to bear with one another. We have to fight for one another. We have to have the hard conversations and not bail. But see, our, again, our society, the noise that we hear says the exact opposite. They say, if it's hard, then it's unsafe. They've been using a lot of safe and danger words lately. It's unsafe, you need to get out of there. Now don't hear me wrong, boundaries are okay. Boundaries, if you're being abused, if you're being mistreated, it is appropriate and right to remove yourself to be in a literal safe experience, right? But boundaries are really bad excuses to not engage in intimacy with other people. And we're called to intimacy as the church. We're called to model relationship well. And so I just wanna say it's hard because the world, the two things I feel like the world, the world wants to, to kill when, when, they, when you press into these relationships is it wants to kill vulnerability and it, wants to, and it wants to kill love. Those are the two things. It wants to, I'm not gonna be vulnerable with you anymore. Wall's drawn. You ever done that? Yeah, yeah I've done it. I'm guilty. One too many times. Thank you, Jesus, he doesn't do that to us. Oh, could you imagine? We'd be doomed. Every one of us. Hey, I told you and you didn't respond right. Wall's drawn, sorry. Oh, thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you are gracious beyond compare. But we're called to model Jesus in us. We're called to love like that and we can't, take the chance of just shutting down vulnerability. I, I was thinking about how perfect Jesus is in all ways, but in, in this example, 
you know, he's in the upper room. He ties a towel around his waist. He gets down on his knees and he begins to wash the feet of all his disciples. And this is another one of my favorite portions of scripture for many reasons. Some of the cultural stuff is super cool. One is that what he was doing was offensive because washing the feet was the lowest level of servanthood. Meaning in a, in, a, in a Jewish home, the lowest servant would be the one that washes the master's feet. You'd walk in the door, he'd untie the sandals, and he'd wash the feet. That's just what you do. And if you were a Jew, you wouldn't even do it. So even if you were a Jewish slave, it was beneath you. And now Jesus, king of the universe, who is a Jew, is on his knees washing his disciples' feet. This is why when it talks about John the Baptist saying, here comes the son of man, the son of God, whom I'm unworthy to wa- uh, unstrap the sandals of his feet. That's why that's such a provocative statement. Because he's like, I'm so lowly compared to him. I'm the worst and lowest of servants compared to who this king is coming down the road. Speaking of Jesus. And now Jesus on his knees in vulnerability and relationship is doing this. But what's so crazy is that he's doing it to Judas. The man he knows is going to stab him in the back. But this is what God does. He remains vulnerable and affectionate, keeps his love on, even knowing what's ahead. Could you imagine marrying your wife knowing she was gonna have an affair on you? Could you imagine marrying your husband knowing he's gonna cheat on you? This is the whole book of Hosea. The prophet Hosea is called to go and marry a prostitute. <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> yeah, go marry, so he goes and he marries Gomer. And then he wakes up one morning and he's already had children with Gomer. He's already created a life many years in with Gomer and he wakes up and she's not in the bed. And Shirley's like, <laughs> it's okay. She's making coffee and breakfast in the kitchen. That must be what she's doing. No. He goes to the kitchen. Gomer's not there. He's like, man, what's going on? So he starts asking her, has anybody seen Gomer? Could you imagine what that would be like in a very real situation? Like going to her old stomping grounds where she used to stand on the corner and sell herself. Hey, guys, um, have you seen my wife, Gomer? Like, you know how uncomfortable you would feel in your own skin? I'm just, I'm just looking for my wife. Oh, oh you guys are married still? I, oh, I saw her a couple days ago. I think, she, I think she went that way. And he follows her. And what we see in Hosea is he goes to the city center and there's a crowd of people yelling. And he hears through this crowd, there's all this noise. And he hears that it's an auction. And there is a person standing on the auction block and he recognizes it's his wife, Gomer, and she's being sold into sex slavery. His own wife. And he is forcing his way through the crowd trying to get close to her. And he starts yelling out crazy numbers. And all of a sudden he throws out this massive number that is totally absurd. And enough to where it quiets the crowd and they're all turning in like, who just said that? Hosea, you're buying, she's already yours. He's like, yeah, but I'll pay everything. I'll do anything. Do you know that you're already God's? Yeah, he paid the highest price for you. Do you know that? You're already his, you're made in his image. You look like him. And he's like, I'll pay anything for you. I don't care how absurd it is. And then what Hosea does is he pulls Gomer down off that block and he pulls her to side and he renews his vows to her. He says, I will be faithful to you and I ask that you would be faithful to me and you will live the rest of our days together. And even this morning, I feel like some of you maybe are feeling like it's too hard to love God and it's too hard to love people because you don't even love yourself. You feel like I've messed up too much. I've gone too far. I've, I, I, I've, I've rebelled too much. I'm telling you, God is a God of second chances. He's merciful and he will buy back what is already his. 
And he's after you right now saying, I don't care what you did. I will heal you. I will forgive you. I just want to live the rest of our days together. And he's inviting you into intimacy again. Please do not let your pride of your own failures keep you from humbling yourself and stepping into intimacy with God again. Like I'm begging you, it's not worth it. Because God is merciful. He keeps his vulnerability on towards you. So he is there washing Judas's feet, knowing he's about to betray him. That just blows my mind. How does, how does he do that? You know, statistics tell me that 90% of adult people will experience a form of trauma at some point in their life. And that the vast majority of those traumas are perpetrated by people. And the vast majority of those traumas are done by people that are, should be a close, safe friend or family member. So it tells me in this room, including myself and I have my own scars and stories to share, that we're hurt. We've been hurt by people. That people betrayed us and offended us or, or abandoned us. But do we turn our love off? Do we stop our vulnerability? What, what do we do when that happens? Especially when we're not healed. Some of us aren't healed yet. We're still feeling the gaping wound of that offense. My plea is that you would let God put his finger in that wound. It might hurt. It will hurt. But just like a good surgeon who cuts out a tumor to save a life, God wants to cut that pain out of you so that you might be able to live and win, win at life. And if you have undealt with trauma, it's gonna feel hard to win or overcome this world. And God wants to touch the very place of your deepest hurt today. He wants to encourage you to learn to do it by remaining vulnerable, not throwing up the walls, not becoming calloused, not having your heart grow cold, but saying, God, soften me again. Because a lot of times what we do is we project our pain from other people onto God. This person hurt me. God, where were you? How dare you? You don't care about me. And God's like, I wanna hold you in my arms right now. And I wanna meet the very greatest place of need that you have. I think about how Jesus, even on the cross, was deeply concerned about some guys that were casting lots over his clothes. He was dying. He was suspended on the cross, suffocating to death by the weight of his own body. And yet he takes time to see these guys casting lots over his cloak and they were mocking him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So not only does Jesus keep his love on, not only does he remain vulnerable in the midst of offenses, even, even premeditated or future event, uh, offenses that he knows are coming, but then he's forgiving. And he's even forgiving while the act is still occurring. That's crazy. I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's crazy. You could hurt me, and I think maybe I could have the character or the grace to go nurse my wounds in a little hole somewhere for a couple years or something. And then I come back and say, okay, I've dealt with it. I forgive you. 
But could you imagine like walking into the room and they're in the bed together having an affair and you're like, I forgive you. You don't know what you're doing. You don't realize the destruction of your decisions and I forgive you. Could you imagine? Like that's what Jesus does for us. That's insane. But that's God. That's what he does. So even now you might be thinking, I'm in the middle of my rebellion with Jesus. And God's like, I forgive you. Just come, just turn. Turn towards me. Lock eyes with me. I wanna pull you out of that right now. I forgive you, I love you, come to me. He's consistently contending for your soul. And I believe that this is what God wants to teach us how to do. He wants us to learn to love like Jesus. This is the testimony of my life. My personal life, my family. Um, In 1981, it was 40 years ago last week, my father was having a party at his house. He was, he was 31 years old and my sister was already born. I was not yet born. And uh, they were having a party at the house and um, there was a bunch of friends over and they ran out of some food. And so my dad volunteered to go pick up some food. So they went, there's a place called Western Sizzler. Anybody remember Western Sizzlers? So he was driving to a Western Sizzler. It's a Midwest franchise for the record. And he was going there and because he was drunk from drinking at the party, he turned a corner and he hit a family riding bicycles. And there was a mom on a bike and there was a dad on a bike and there was a baby strapped in a baby seat on the back of one of the bikes. He was so intoxicated and so in shock, combination of the two, that he continued to drive even after the baby's bike had gotten caught underneath his car and he drug it for another 1,200 feet before he stopped. He was immediately arrested, immediately taken to jail. Um, He did not know the state of the family. He just knew that he made the absolute worst decision of his entire life. So the next morning, my grandfather came and bailed him out of jail. And the first thing he said was, what's the update of the family? He's like, well, the dad's in serious condition, the mom's in critical condition, and the baby died this morning. Immediately, depression fell on my father. Like in the moment he heard it, like just, what have I done? I'm a monster. What have I done? And because they were living in Evansville, Indiana, everybody heard and knew who he was. It's not a huge town. And so there began to become hate mail and there became, you know, people, people hated my father. And have you ever heard of Mad Mothers Against Drunk Driving? That started because my dad had this accident. So it was mothers in Evansville retaliating against my father because this was not the first time drunk driving happened in the town. It was kind of becoming a theme. And they were like, enough is enough. And they made my dad the poster child of their whole organization. And so to get out of town, he couldn't leave the state of Indiana, but my grandparents lived in Madison, Indiana, a few hours away. So my, for, for six months in the process between the day he was posted bail to, for his sentencing date, he was living in Madison, Indiana with my grandparents because no one liked him in Evansville. And so while they were living in Madison, my dad made a list of all the people that could help him in his place of need. I mean, it was like a 20-something person list and he started going through it and realized that not a single soul could help him in a situation. No one. And so my grandfather and my grandmother said, well, hey, maybe you should talk to our priest. They were Episcopalians and they had a, a local pre- preacher. And there's a, a, a pastor there, his name's Carl Buffington. Carl Buffington loved the Lord. And they said, maybe you should talk to Carl. 
And my dad was like, well, if he can help me, I'll do anything because I'm, I'm desperate. So he meets with Carl and he sits down with the guy and dad kind of shares roughly what's going on and Carl kind of dismisses it. It was a really weird situation because Carl's like, yeah, yeah, I understand that's really bad, but you have, a, you have a bigger problem, Randy. My dad's like, what? Like almost kind of like wanting to cuss him out. <laughs> Again, my dad's in process in life. He's like, you know, forget you, man, like a bigger problem. And he said, no, yeah, what's your relationship like with Jesus? I don't know. And Carl says, well, if you don't know, then you don't have one. And he goes, let me tell you who Jesus is. And he tells him who Jesus is. And there is enough grace, my dad says, for him to have. He said, and my dad even said, he thinks it was more of a mental exercise than even a heart connect. But he just said, I'm choosing to believe that Jesus can save me in spite of my horrible shortcomings. And he said that, and I love this. My dad says, God honors the smallest of yeses. So even today, whatever's hitting you, whatever God's speaking to your heart, say yes to it, even if it feels really weak. Because God honors even the smallest of yeses. And that began a massive, quick transition after that of falling in love with God. So within weeks, my dad said, all he did was read the Bible. All he did was listen to Christian music. All he did was watch Christian television because he was dying on the inside about going to prison. And what he did, the whole thing, he was like overcome by it. So he's like, I had to block out all everything else and just like the only time I felt any semblance of peace was if I was with God and I was aware of it. Okay, I'm with God right now. And everything else felt like it was just destroying me. So he ends up getting sentenced to prison and he gets sentenced to 16 years in prison. In Indiana, you get half time for good behavior. So it went down to eight years because he had never committed a crime prior to that. And he, he was a civil person otherwise. And so they, they, they dropped down to eight years. But then he got the opportunity to get out even uh, about four and a half, five years early. So he did a little over three years in prison. But he was able to get out early because he ended up becoming a spokesperson for MAD. So he ended up traveling for their organization, giving talks on why you should not drink and drive. And he did this for about five years. Well, when he got out of prison, now his relationship with God had grown significantly in the time of prison. And, and my mom was not a believer. And after three months of my dad consistently walking with Jesus, she was like, maybe this is real. Like, maybe there is something true to this. It's not just a desperate cry of help because he made a bad decision, but something of of God is real and engaging with my husband. So then about three to four months later, my mom gave her life to Jesus. And so they're both walking with the Lord. They're both asking God what to do when he gets out of prison. And they say, move back to Evansville, Indiana. And they're like, I don't wanna go to Evansville, Indiana. Like my dad, like if you walk down the street, people would cuss at him and like spit at him. Like it was bad. And he's like, I don't wanna go there. Like, I don't wanna deal with that. But the Lord spoke it. So he goes back and he can't find a job. And he's depressed because the, he still is dealing with depression. Even walking with Jesus, he's still de- dealing with depression every day because of the baby. And so he is finally getting a job because a friend owns a used car dealership and he hates it. And the irony of it all is that he lost his license for eight years after he gets out of prison as part of his sentencing. So he's selling cars, he can't even drive, you know? So he's at this job, he hates this job. And then one specific morning he gets up and he's reading the paper and on the front page of the page, it says, Randy Reed sued for $6 million in a civil lawsuit from the family that he had originally hit almost four years earlier. And so he is like overwhelmed. Like, what am I gonna do? So he's at, he's at his work and there's only one other Christian at his job. And one day he is so down and discouraged that he just butts right into the guy's office while he's in the middle of the sale and says, I've got to talk to you right now. And the guy knew my dad, knew his story and said, I'll be right there. So he just apologizes to the clients and says, I'm gonna have to be back. 
and he like leaves them at the table or at the desk and they go outside and this guy just begins to intercede him more for my dad. So they're walking around the used car dealership and they're just kind of moseying around and they begin to hold hands. My dad did not care. He's like, I'll hold your hand, just plead with me. So this guy's praying and my dad's agreeing. This guy's praying, my dad's agreeing. And they do this for about 20, 30 minutes in the parking lot. He says, by the end of it, all the weight of the world that he'd been feeling crushing him felt like it lifted off his shoulders. Have you ever experienced that? Just meeting with God and all of a sudden the thing that's crushing him is like, it's like almost like you can take a breath and you're like, oh, thank you, God. You know, you're with me. And it's so good. And he's like, thank you so much. He's like, absolutely. And he's about to walk in. The guy stops and he's like, Randy, you won't believe this. He says, what? He goes, God just told me something. I'm like, God told you something? What, what does that mean? He's like, God told me you're gonna have a miracle in your life. What? Yeah, not a year from now, not a month from now, today. Now, something's happening. God's gonna work a miracle in your life. My dad's like, I'm gonna get a new job. No, no, they're gonna drop the civil lawsuit. No, God's so big, they'll drop the civil lawsuit and I'll get a new job. You know, like that's just what he's thinking. He's like, woohoo, right? This is 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, by 5 p.m., which is when my mom's supposed to pick him up, and my mom is, sorry, mom, notoriously late. Um, she's not there. So then it's like 5.30. It's like, you know, and he's like waiting for her to pick him up. Irony of a salesman not being able to drive a car. And she comes and gets him. He had forgotten all about the miracle. He'd forgotten all about the prayer time. And the entire weight of the world that was on his shoulders seemed to come right back on. You ever done that too? God gives you peace and then we somehow go back and pick it right back up and choose to put it squarely right back on our shoulders. And they get in the car and dad's like, you're late and he's grouchy and she's like, I know, I'm sorry, you know? And she's like, he's like, just, I just wanna go home. I've had a horrible day. And she's like, I know, I know, I'm so sorry, okay. He's like, honey, we gotta go to the store. And it was because they needed a pregnancy test and they went the day before, but they couldn't afford it. That's how broke they were because of the lawyer fees and everything. My parents were broke like borderline bankrupt for years because of all the, because of the accident. And so dad's like, all right, well, we were there yesterday. It's the back right-hand corner. You're going in, I'm staying in the car. My mom's like, all right, take it easy. But as soon as they pull into the parking spot at the store, my dad gets out of the car. My mom's like, honey, you sit. And he doesn't listen to her. She just starts walking. He just starts walking in. She's like, all right. So she gets out of the car and she's walking. And she says that he's walking. He's kind of like stomping, you know, heads down, grouchy, kind of just physically showing he's just put out with the world, right? So he's just walking and she can hear that he's mumbling to himself out loud. She's like, oh gosh, he's losing it, you know? So they go into the store and he goes, like, it's just like this, of these, those aisles, but instead of the far right corner where the, where the pregnancy test is, he goes to the far left opposite corner. And she's like, what is he doing? So she's following him. And he goes all the way down the farthest left aisle, halfway, stops, turns around, comes back to the front, comes over one more aisle, goes up halfway, stops, comes back to the front. Goes over the next aisle, goes up halfway, stops, comes back to the front. And my mom is like, he's lost his mind. This is it, I'll have to admit him. This is the time he fully breaks. And she says she's about to like smack him, say, snap out of it. What are you doing? Before he almost runs into this woman in the middle of one of these aisles. And this lady is shopping for some groceries and she has a baby carrier, like a little papoose carrier where the baby's head sticks over her shoulder like this. So it's on her chest, nice and tight. And my dad starts petting the head of this baby. The stranger lady, he's going, oh, and he's gooing and God and making noises and stuff. And my mom's like, you can't touch other people's babies. Like, what are you, you've lost your mind, you know? And he goes, no, honey, look, Celeste, look. And he goes, she goes, what? She goes, this is the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. And my mom's like, you're so, you're, you're right. My mom of saying mine, for the record, that is an unusually beautiful baby. 
And my mom starts petting this person's baby and gooing in God over it. Well, obviously, what well, was probably only like 10 seconds, probably felt like a lifetime, this woman turns around and she goes, can I help you? And my dad goes, oh my gosh, are you Sandra Miller? And it's the woman he had hit four years earlier. This is the first time he had seen her since the day he was sentenced to prison. He said that when he was in prison, he had written and rewritten and rewritten again an apology. And he tried to craft the most sincere apology he could muster. And then he took the time to memorize it so that if he was ever to see her, he could articulate with his best ability how sorry he was for what he's done to her and her family. So he goes, she goes, yes, I know who you are, John Reed. And he goes, okay, well, and he starts to try to say his apology. And he says, he starts fumbling over his words and he can't get out. And then she silences him. And he thinks, she's going to let me have it. And I deserve every bit of it. If she wants to hit me, if she wants to kick me, if she wants to spit in my face, if anything she does brings some sort of peace or healing or support to her, she can do whatever she wants to do. I don't care. And she goes, I have something to tell you. And he's like, yeah, please, yeah, whatever, you, whatever you want. You know? goes, I need to let you know something. Yeah, go, go right ahead. Since the accident, I've given my life to Jesus. Excuse me? Yeah, I've given my life to Jesus. And this week, he was telling me in my quiet times with him that I had to find you and I had to tell you that I forgive you. I told you I might cry. Every time. He goes, what? She goes, yeah, I forgive you. She goes, the Lord told me that that's what I needed and that's what you need. And my dad just begins weeping. And then my mom begins weeping and then Sandra begins weeping and then Sandra initiates a hug and she embraces my parents and this beautiful new baby, they, my dad took their last child, is in between them and they're embracing each other, weeping over the kindness of God that would give us the courage to forgive even when it hurts. And they sit down on the floor of this grocery store in the middle of like the canned good aisle for like three hours and they share their testimonies of what God has been doing in the last four years of their life. And as they get ready to leave, they stand up and she, they're about to leave and Sandra goes, hey, you need to do something for me. And my dad's like, I'll do anything for you. And she goes, pray for my husband, Steve. He would kill me if he knew that I forgave you. He's not where I'm at in this journey. He's like, absolutely, I will pray, I will do it. I'm there. And they leave the store. And the next day, my parents are out shopping because I think it's like close to Christmas or something, it's a holiday season. And they're out shopping with their closest couple friend. And like most couples do, the dudes go off and do the dude thing and the ladies go off and do the lady thing. And they say, hey, let's meet at the fountain and the food court in two hours. I said, deal. So they're back at the food court fountain. And my dad's obviously waiting for my mom to get back on time. And she finally comes back and she's like, Randy, you won't believe what just happened. And he goes, what? She goes, I saw Sandra Miller. My dad's like, we've been living here and around here for so many years. Like, how, why would God have us see her two times in two days? Like, what is God doing? She goes, I'll tell you what God's doing. And he's like, What? She goes, Sandra told me that last night after we left the grocery store, that she went home and we went home. And then when she got inside the door, she said the phone was ringing. So she put down the baby, she put down the groceries and picked up the phone. And now on the other end of this phone is a man named Dan. And the crazy thing about Dan is before the accident ever occurred, he was a close family friend of the Reed family and a close family friend of the, of the Millers. He knew both families intimately, not just like from a distance. And he never told either family that he knew either one. And makes matters even crazier is he was a paraplegic because he was hit by a drunk driver. So if anybody could understand what's going on and relate to the situation, it could be Dan. 
And on top of all that, Dan loved Jesus. So Dan calls Sandra and they're small talking and catching up and stuff. And he's like, hey, Sandra, I'm sorry to cut to the chase, but he's like, I'm actually calling for a reason. She's like, what's that? He's like, I was just now spending time with God. And God told me I had to call you right now to tell you you have to forgive Randy Reed. She goes, Dan, let me just tell you what happened for the last three hours at the grocery store. So she tells him the whole story. Dan starts crying. She starts crying. They have like this moment on the phone and she hangs up the phone. When she turns around behind her, her husband Steve is standing right there and he heard the whole thing. She said it was the only time she's ever actually felt physically frightened of her own husband. She said he started walking towards her and she started kind of pedaling back. That as he started, his shoulders dropped and all of a sudden he fell to his knees and he'd been crying. So then she said she ran over to him and she put her arms around him. She goes, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so, I wasn't trying to betray you. I, I'm sorry if I betrayed your trust. I, I'm just trying to learn how to obey Jesus. And like, she's just trying to get him to comfort him, you know? And, and all of a sudden he goes, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. She goes, what? He goes, this morning, I was spending time with God and he told me I had to forgive Randy Reed. Both parents forgive my dad on the same day, independent of one another, because God is a speaking, healing, engaging God. And he's trying to teach us, amen. He's trying to teach us to be vulnerable. He's trying to teach us to be forgiving. He's trying to teach us to love like him. And he's giving Sandra his heart so she might love my dad, who is the offender. He is wrong, he is guilty. And yet she shows mercy to him. And the moment my dad heard that, standing next to a fountain in the food court of a mall, the spirit of depression that had plagued him for four years immediately left. Instantly, when he heard that both parents forgave him. He was completely delivered. And then on, on just a little side note, on top of all that, they dropped the lawsuit and he got a new job a month later. <laughs> he was winning at life again, right? Like, thank you, Jesus. This is the point. I don't know what your offense is. I don't know what your hurt is. I know we live in a broken, hurting world that's crying out louder now than ever, but the church has to rise up and learn to love like Jesus. But we can't do it if we don't know how to love him first and be loved by him. So there has to be an intimate connection with Jesus that then we then give away to other people. But we have to be willing to be vulnerable when coworkers or classmates or family members or whoever is hurting us. We have to remain vulnerable. We have to remain forgiving. We have to, bitterness will kill you and take you out of the game. It'll kill you and it'll take you out of the game. And I don't want you to be taken out of the game. God is inviting us into this intimate place of learning to love like Jesus. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to give up offense? And I'm not trying to make excuse for what is really hurting you. I'm just saying, don't be stuck in life forever there. That, does, that is not what God wants for you. But because he has come, he said, take heart for I've overcome the world. And he's allowing us to be co-victors, co-conquerors with him in that. We can be free, we can be liberated. And then we get to model it to a broken world around us that the church is the answer for the world today. People should be flooding the doors of this place because they see how we love each other, how we are vulnerable with one another, how we forgive one another. And it's not because we don't hurt each other. We can be jerks right? We're human. But it's how we learn to engage in the fight for each other, not against each other. That we're not each other's enemies, that we love each other and we lean in and we fight for relationship. And people will see that and it's attractive. And they say, I don't have that. I need that. And God, it wants to blow this place up with people flooding and giving their life to Jesus and being healed and restored because this is a room full of healed and restored people because we learn how to love like Jesus. Will you stand with me? One of my favorite quotes is a Max Lucado quote that says, relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. I wanna say that again, I want you to think about it. Relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. 
I'm gonna pray in a second, and when I do, I just want you to do some self-evaluation. How am I doing in life? What am I holding on to that God's saying is actually preventing me from moving forward? Is there a place I need to repent of something? Is there a place where I need to forgive someone of something? Is there walls that I've drawn out of self-protection that's actually keeping me from growing in intimacy with God and with other people? Have I actually thought that I could get away with saying, oh, I love you, Jesus, I just don't love people. That would be like you coming to me and saying, Adam, I really love you, but I have an issue with your wife. Like, I just don't like her. I would say, hey, I love you too, but you and I, we have problems. Because <laughs> that's my woman you're talking about. So if you have an issue, even with the bride of Christ, with the church, and your offense is in the house of church, and then the church has caused you to distance yourself from the church, you're actually hindering the intimacy that God has for you. And I believe today's just a day of healing. Today's a day of restoration and of restoring what's, what's been lost. He wants to bring back in completion and fullness. But it requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to be humble and acknowledge our need for him that we can't fix it ourselves. And so is there a ministry team or is there a way for people to come forward? I would love for you to get prayer. You can either just kneel where you are, come kneel at the front. You can come up and get someone to pray with you and actually process it out loud. You can meet with a pastor, but do what it takes to get free, friends. Don't continue to live in bondage. Don't continue to be riddled with bitterness or insecurity or pains from the past when God wants to set us free and, and, and live as overcomers, that we might stand firm. For we're called to win at life. This is the promise that God gives us, but we have to participate in his way, not our way. And it requires a, a narrow path of going low and humbling ourselves to do it. So I'm gonna pray. Chris is gonna lead us in worship, but may we not check out, but may we engage with the living God who wants to talk to the condition of our own souls right now and let's be responders to Jesus. So Lord, I pray right now that you would come and you would move in power, that you would soften us, that you would heal us, Jesus. Would you heal us? That person that should have been safe was unsafe and we were marred by them. God, may we not live as victims any longer of that situation, but may we bring, bring us into a place of victor, a place of overcoming, that you would heal us and restore us, that we might turn our love back on, that we would become vulnerable again with people and community, that we would operate in forgiveness even in the midst of offense, as absurd as it is, there's a grace from heaven, the same spirit that was in God that raised him up from the dead is the spirit that lives within us that allows us to operate the same way that he did. Teach us to love like you. Teach us to love people. May they not be our enemy. May they're political or, or racial or economic or COVID stance or whatever the, the dividing boxes that are around us every day. We, we tear them down in Jesus' name. And we see them as souls that need Jesus as much as we do. And we love them and we love them radically. We love them at a cost, even when they're not receiving it. Or Because sometimes we wanna, pre okay, I'll love you, but you need to reciprocate. And no, we don't, it's, it's a one-way choice. God, may they reciprocate. May they be, have soft hearts. But for us in this house, we will choose to love like Jesus, no matter the outcome. We hope this message encouraged you today. For more information about Burning Hearts Church and our mission, please head to burningheartsfargo.com. If you are in the Fargo area, we would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services, either 9 or 1045 a.m. Have a great rest of your week.